Greetings, everyone. You're listening to JOY, a podcast from St. Margaret's Episcopal Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. I'm the Reverend Mary Vano, and today I'm delighted to welcome the Reverend Marie Maynard O'Connell, who is the pastor of Park Hill Presbyterian Church in North Little Rock. Marie, welcome to our joy. Thank you so much, Mary. I am very excited to be here today. Can we start, Marie, with you just telling us a little bit about yourself? I'm the pastor at Park Hill Presbyterian Church, and I have been ministering here in Arkansas for almost 10 years. I didn't grow up in the church, which actually becomes a little important to the story of how I ended up as a minister, but I have three kids, and I've been able to be the pastor installed in my denomination for two churches, but I've also served in a variety of positions all within the central Arkansas area. So one thing I know about you, Marie, is that you are passionate about the Song of Songs, which for those who may not know is a book of scripture. Sometimes it's called the Song of Solomon. Marie, you have told me that the Song of Songs is not only your favorite book of the Bible, it's one of the reasons you are a Christian. So today I really want to learn from you about the Song of Songs And I'd love to hear more about how this collection of love poetry has made you a Christian. But before we do that, we just discussed that to talk about the Song of Songs, there's sort of a disclaimer that is needed. You want to give it to us? I would like to issue the content warning that this podcast contains salacious language, including the word breasts. And so if you find yourselves giggling or blushing, that is to be expected. (laughs) And so I should say there are multiple allegories and metaphors that will make you go, did that just say that? I never read that in scripture before. And yes, indeed, it does. Just a warning for anyone who's listening. Mm -hmm. This is definitely going to be safe for work, but maybe not safe to have your 11-year-old listening at the same time. (laughs) It's the raciest book of scripture. You asked how I came to love this book, and it does have a little bit to do with the fact that I didn't grow up in the church. My parents grew up in the church, but when they married, it just wasn't something at that time that they thought would be important to rearing their children. So while I was a very spiritual kid growing up and would pester my parents to go to church and I'd accept the invitation from my friends, it wasn't a regular part of my childhood. And I discovered that as I got older, so think preteens, and reading scripture for myself, I started to have a real problem with what I read in scripture versus is what I was seeing from Christians in the real world. And so I started to be very uncomfortable accepting those invitations, kind of started to develop this attitude that the same as Gandhi, I like your Christ, but I don't like your Christians. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, Jesus might be all right, but all his friends are jerks. And maybe I'm reading it wrong. Maybe I'm misunderstanding the New Testament stories and I'm the one who's incorrect. And so by first year of high school, I was not in the Christian camp. I would actually say I was pretty antagonistic. And I ended up dating the man that I would marry. And he is a PK. He's a preacher's kid. So I was attending his church as a method of dating, going to his youth group. And in that youth group, I remember sharing that issue that y'all are real nice, but the rest of the Christians out there are not so pleasant. You know, I said, I really don't think I can read scripture anymore. And someone very offhandedly said, you should read the book Song of Songs. And why? That person said, you should read it because it doesn't mention God, but it's all about sex. 
And in my 15, 16 year old mind, I thought you are on. <laughs> and so <laughs> I picked up the Bible and found the book. I had never read it before. It's in the middle. If you open the Bible, just straight to the middle, there's a good chance you'll end up in Psalms or Song of Psalms. And I read it. And at first I giggled and left because it is definitely love poetry between two very amorous young people. But then throughout the course of the book, I ended up coming to near the end of it. It's actually the beginning of chapter seven. And if I could, I'm going to read it to you because I want you to imagine who I was. I was a terribly awkward teenager, desperate to understand my place in the world and God, feeling very uncomfortable in my newly pubescent skin and not feeling lovable or loved by the church. And then I hear these words as if they are being spoken by God to me. How graceful are your feet in sandals, O queenly maiden. Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. Your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns, the twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are pools in Heshbon, by the gate of the bath ribim. Your nose is like the tower of Lebanon, overlooking Damascus. Your head crowns you like caramel, and your flowing locks are like purple. A king is held captive in the tresses. And at that moment, I remember having the thought quite distinctly, if that's Jesus, he can have me. Because <laughs> that was the first time I had felt seen and I had felt loved. That gaze of the masculine speaker looking the feminine form up and giving nothing but compliment and praise. Admittedly, in some ways, I was like, I don't understand what that means, but I can tell it's positive. I was so uncomfortable with my physical form and being a young person that I recognized suddenly myself, it was no longer two other people talking about their love. Suddenly I could understand this in the allegorical sense that the book is often read in as conversation between God and humanity, or in this case, even possibly between Jesus and me. And suddenly I found myself embroiled in the debate, Jesus is your boyfriend, good or bad. And I found myself saying, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> if that's the gate by which I can get into understanding a relationship with God, this is good. It shocked me into taking this book and a relationship with God more seriously at a time when I think secretly that's what my heart really wanted. So God used this poetry, this language as a way of telling you that you are loved. Yes. And the more I read the book, the more I could see into it language that I could use to talk to God. And also, ultimately, over time, I have found more and more nuggets of joy inside this book about relationships, the kind of relationship God wants for us and God wants with us. Because this book has an incredible mutuality between the two lovers. There's a real give and take, there's a flirtatiousness, but there's also respect. And the idea that the female, the feminine voice, I prefer the feminine voice, you'll hear why later, but that the feminine voice has agency. She both gets to declare that she's in charge of her body and to also make statements and requests for herself and also for her lover. 
as I grew older and was trying to undo some of the things I had been told by the institutional church as it exists in society and not within its own walls, undo even about purity culture and about what sexual relationships should be like between two people who really love each other and even marriage. So I've just found this book to be a treasure trove. And I've even argued to some of my friends that it's a modern evangelical gospel that we are not paying enough attention to. Well, that's intriguing. Let's open up that treasure trove a little bit more. Tell us more about what is in the Song of Songs. One of the things that we should start with is how the Song of Songs begins. And so the opening lines of Song of Songs in English reads the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. But the Hebrew for that is so much deeper and richer. And I'm not going to pretend to have a good enough grasp of Hebrew to speak it. But the more literal translation is this is the song of songs or the songiest of songs. It's a repetition in Hebrew that lifts up, that magnifies the word song, which is Solomon's, or that could also mean of Solomon. It might mean by Solomon, but our best scholarship suggests that this book came about about 500 BCE and many, many centuries, the majority of it after Solomon's reign. And so while perhaps some of it, maybe a small portion of it was in existence for King Solomon's actual life, it's probably not going to be enough to say that King Solomon had authorship of this. And there's some other hints about who the author may have actually been, given its topic, its tone, and the voices within, in that we have some very agrarian images. Much of the speakers, the masculine and feminine voices, seem to be day laborers. They talk about their sheep and their goats and their vineyards and their flocks and have a lot of imagery of being in the fields. And when they speak of being in the king's palace, it often seems to be bedroom talk, language magnifying their own experience that, you know, we're under these cedar trees, but it's like being in the king's palace. Going back to the song of songs, the songiest of songs, it's almost as though it is saying, this is the best song. This is the most amazing song. This is the song of songs. One of the things that we can think about is how this song came to be within our canon. I think that's important that we still have it. Rabbi Akiva is a very well-known ancient rabbi who spoke about the Song of Songs in many ways, but two specific ones. One gives us a hint as to how this song may have come about. Rabbi Akiva says, he who sings the Song of Songs in wine taverns, treating it as if it were a vulgar song, forfeits his share in the world to come. <laughs> That's bold. That is bold. But one, it tells you that this song was sung in taverns. <laughs> so it probably had a beat and a rhythm and a tune. It has internal rhymes in some places. And you can imagine this being a drinking song. And there are certainly portions of it that you can imagine it that way. But it also tells you that means the song probably came up from the people, not a court song, not a song that was commissioned and has lofty language. This is very visceral language. And I love that. But Rabbi Akiva goes on to talk about why this song needs to be treated with more respect. And he goes on to say, 
the question of whether it should be considered a defiled work. And I am stealing this from Wikipedia because I needed to find the quote fast. But he says, God forbid for all of eternity in its entirety is not as worthy as the day on which the Song of Songs was given to Israel. For all the writings are holy, but the Song of Songs is the holy of holy. As an incredible statement, kind of goes along with a tradition that this song is one that God sings at the start of each day to humanity. If you really dig into it and, and hear some of what could be understood as God's language to us, it's really inspiring. As I understand it, this is mostly a collection of love poetry, and not just any collection of love poetry. As we discuss now, this gets, you know, is raised from the people to be the best song out there. I love that. But the primary voice in this book is female. The poetry centers around two people who are intensely, romantically attracted to each other. And some people are surprised when they discover that this is in the Bible. It stands out from it does. It does. different forms of literature in the Bible. So why do you think that this is included in our sacred writings? I think this is included in our sacred writings because not only does it fit in the realm of love poetry, and it's beautiful love poetry at that. And so on that very first level of almost, it's hard to take it literally because there's so much allegory and metaphor. Mm -hmm. But at that very first level of being love poetry, I think people who have been in love or have felt this kind of intense visceral attraction recognize it as a kind of truth to the human experience. So that's the first kind of level that people typically open the book to. And admittedly, if you just crack open Song of Solomon in the middle of worship service because you're 12 and you're bored and you read this, you're going to giggle because you think that that's exactly what it's like, that it's talking very much in a literal form. I'm looking for the portion here where the masculine voice has been listening to the feminine voice and she is the main voice, which actually gives a little bit of credence to the idea that this may have originally been written by a female hand because she does have such agency, such power. She's such a big part of this piece that we can't discount the possibility that this was at least in part feminine song that mm -hmm. women sang mm -hmm. when extolling their lover or their husband or what have you. So that's the first level. I think the reason why it was canonized is kind of the same reason that Rabbi Akiva speaks to, is that it also leaps from the page in its allegorical sense. I'll tell you in a minute about a second allegorical sense that I think really needs to be lifted up. But the traditional allegorical sense kind of divides the masculine voice and the feminine voice into God and Israel. Christians have read that as Christ and the church. Mystics have read that as Christ and the individual. But it tends to kind of run along the lines of the powerful deity equals the male voice. Has been the tradition. And people who are listening to this podcast cannot see my stink face. 
<laughs> where I'm like, yeah, that's okay. But you run into some problems with that particular allegory. It works really well for the love between and some of the language. I'm going to read to you something here in chapter four is the masculine voice speaking about the beauty of the feminine. And here she's called the bride. Sometimes she's also called the Shulamite, a version of the name of Solomon. She's got a couple different names, but here her beauty is being extolled. So imagine that this is the deity, God or Christ, speaking about creation. How beautiful you are, my love. How very beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats moving down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins, and not one of them is bereaved. Your lips are like a crimson thread. Your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like the halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David built in courses, and on it hang a thousand bucklers, the shields of warriors. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of the gazelle, that feed among the lilies until the day breathes and the shadows flee. I will hasten to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. It's just beautiful. In nine, I didn't even get to this part. You have ravished my heart, my sister, my bride. You have ravished my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How sweet is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than any spice. If you're in the allegory of God and humanity, then what is being spoken here is better than frankincense and oil and myrrh and sacrifice is love. That the gift that God desires from us is not any tangible thing, it's our devotion. And that God sees us in our most flawless and perfect form with through the eyes of love, overlooking all of the things that we probably do wrong because it's the eyes of love. That's amazing. And you can read the whole book with that particular allegory. If you do, you do run into some challenges in that there are two moments in this book where it seems to be a dream sequence. The feminine voice talks about being asleep and then having a dream or being awoken from sleep. And in those cases, there's a danger involved. In one of them, the danger is that the masculine voice is not answered swiftly enough and he leaves. And in response, she goes out at night into the city. The guards find her in one and send her home. But in the second one, the guards find her and beat her and take away her cloak. And this is too close to a modern experience of violence against women. And so if you're reading it allegorically, the absence of the male voice here becomes problematic. And Jewish leaders and teachers read into this, that this was an allegory of the exile, that this was an understanding that sometimes it does feel as though God leaves and God is absent and that, you know, the human experience is to search for God. But I was really troubled by the leaving of the male figure. So we get the second dream, this dangerous interpretation in chapter five. And here the feminine voice is speaking and she says, I slept, but my heart was awake. Listen, my beloved is knocking. 
Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one, for my head is wet with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. I had put off my garment. How could I put it on again? I had bathed my feet. How could I soil them? My beloved thrust his hand into the opening, and my inmost being yearned for him. I arose to open to my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh upon the handles of the bolt. I opened to my beloved, and my beloved had turned and was gone. My soul failed me when he spoke. I sought him, but did not find him. I called him, but he gave no answer. Making their rounds in the city, the sentinels found me. They beat me. They wounded me. They took away my mantle, those sentinels of the walls. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, tell him this. I am faint with love. And then something that's really interesting here, and my friend, the Reverend Dr. Robert Williamson, who's a professor at Hendricks, shared that one of his students lifted this up, and I was like, oh yes, that's very right. That The next voice is then the friend's voice, the women's chorus, essentially. Mm -hmm. They say, what is your beloved more than any other beloved, O fairest among women? What is your beloved more than any other beloved that you thus adjure us? They kind of question why she's doing this. They lift yeah. up the issue of what makes this suffering worth it. Is that lover really worthy of you? Kind of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Girl, is he? He's just not that into you. If if he showed up for a booty call in the middle of the night and then left, I mean, I yeah. honestly I'm like, I this is real. This is present. This is very modern. <laughs> this is an issue that we now have because of Grinder and Tinder. Yeah. Are Are you sure that he's really the guy for you? And then she responds with another soliloquy about his beauty. And if we're still working with the allegory of the masculine voice being God and the feminine voice being female, there is truth to that, to the sense that God is sometimes hard to find and sometimes not there. But it leaves me feeling like there's something not quite right happening. And I sat with that not quite right for a long time because I found this allegorical reading so personally beneficial. I was talking about it one day with my husband and then not long after with a friend who is themselves trans. And both of them lifted up something, which was, but what if you are male? What if you're a human male and you don't read into this the way you're reading into it? What they were lifting up was that my embodied nature, my own sexuality was part of how I was reading this scripture. So I, because of my cisgenderedness, readily accepted the idea that my lover could be male and God. But what both of those individuals lifted up to me was also the question of well, what about men? How do men read this? And I stopped for a minute and I said, the reverse allegory is better. And I said, what if the divine voice is feminine? Or both. What if you can have both? Because it's epic <laughs> love poetry. Why not? And when you reverse the poles on the uh -huh. allegory and you make the feminine voice capable of being the divine voice, suddenly in the feminine, you have the one who patiently waits for mm -hmm. the masculine to come, who does go out searching for the masculine lover, who you know continues this reciprocity and the desire to love the other completely remains. But you have a much more stable divine voice that is full of longing and the question of return to me, come to me, be with me. I'm opening myself to you. And when I thought about as a Christian, 
how I have come to know and understand God as being self-sacrificing, as going to any length necessary to draw in humanity, even going to the lengths of becoming incarnate and dying for us. It was like my mind exploded into the possibilities that the divine voice here could also be feminine. That just made the book all the richer because suddenly I could hear this last piece in a new way. Near the very end of Song of Songs in 8.6 is what is traditionally understood as the feminine voice speaking. And she says this, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death, passion fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, a raging flame. Many waters cannot quench it, neither can floods drown it. If one offered for love all the wealth of his house, it would be utterly scorned. Actually, is making me think of the prologue to the Gospel of John. He came into what was his own, and his own did not accept him. And we could also talk about how the author of the Gospel of John chose to use logos, the word, a masculine word, perhaps to substitute for Sophia, the feminine voice of wisdom, but in order to make the association with Jesus. Yeah. Very intriguing. <laughs> Very intriguing here, indeed. And I really could just talk about it forever. But I think one of the biggest things that I find to be valuable about this book is to encourage all persons to read it and to allow yourself to find your voice. Which voice feels like me? Allow yourself to be spoken to through the poetry and to hear what you need to hear. I remember there was one time when as a female pastor, I was really struggling with some ugly voices in society that, you know, kind of come with this continuous barrage, women can't be ministers. And I know you and I come from traditions that have understood that scripture might not change, but the spirit keeps moving. And I was just in a place of really struggling with that. And mm -hmm. I had been searching through scripture for some examples of feminine leadership in the Bible throughout time. And I was frustrated with what I thought I already knew in the New Testament. I was like, well, who have I got? I got Mary, Mary, Mary. There's another Mary over there. You know, <laughs> I, was, I was getting too much in my own head. And so I turned to Song of Songs, just as my favorite text. And I literally prayed, Lord, show me something new that's going to help me right now. And here in the very beginning was the answer that I needed. Starting in 1-5, I am black and beautiful, which for today is a really important thing to keep lifting up. I am black and beautiful, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. Tell me, you whom my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon, for why should I be like one who is veiled beside the flocks of your companions? That's the feminine voice asking, where can I find you? Where are yeah. your flocks kept? And then the masculine voice responds, if you do not know, O fairest among women, follow the tracks of the flock and pasture your kids beside the shepherd's tents. And suddenly I realized that she had her own flock 
She had her own vineyard. <laughs> she was I a shepherd have too. A loft. I have a vineyard. <laughs> and I realized that embedded, just hiding within the words, was more of her identity as an equal to her lover. There's never any bit of condemnation for her work as an agrarian, but Stealing that language and saying, that's right, the work that we do, toiling in the vineyard, struggling with the sheep, is recognized. That was just a really important word for me personally. Isa Jesus, I am sure. It was something that that day I could hear. And I think in large part, it's because it's poetic language. And we are not allowed to read it literally. Literally. And we are not allowed to focus solely on its original context. This poem defies us to stick it in a box. It just keeps breaking out of every container we want to put it in, kind of like God. Seems to me like because it's poetry, it transcends any time, any location, all with the purpose of teaching us something about God's love. I think this is a radical idea. What if God simply wants you, all of you, just the way you are? What might that idea do to transform us? That's the idea that ultimately really broke open my relationship with Christ was that thought, this is Jesus, he can have me. (laughs) Because after that, I was kind of this cascade of thoughts of what if I am good enough for God? What if me and all of my mess am still desirable? What if God looks at me with the perfect eyes of a lover and doesn't see fault and mistake, but sees beauty and desirability and that insight instant forgiveness, the knowledge that I am trying, (laughs) Mm -hmm. and that incredible closeness. I think the closest I have gotten is in my marital relationship and my relationship with my kids of, I love them so much, I would do anything for them. And then to realize that that's how God feels about me. It was revolutionary that when I'm really struggling with scripture, I think this is a tradition for y'all as well in the reform tradition where I come from. Sometimes when scripture is difficult, one of the things we'll say is, well, how does other scripture speak to this scripture? How can we let text talk to itself? And sometimes I'll say, so God as I know God out of the Song of Songs, how does that God help me interpret revelations? How does that help me understand Deuteronomistic law? How does that help me understand the exodus and the exile? I found the lover God to be very, very helpful in empowering me to try and be God's hands and feet in the world. to have a lot of people who love me and I don't always feel worthy of that love. I don't always feel like I have done anything to deserve it, that I'm good enough for those who love me. But when I realize that it doesn't matter that they love me anyway, it actually allows me to be free of whatever all that is that kind of holds me back and just be who I am in a way that really shines with the glory with which God made me. Love transforms me. Even when that feels a little hard to accept, when I do, it transforms me. I find this book to be just amazing. 
I was really grateful when you said, hey, do you want to talk about dinosaurs? <laughs> there was no question. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> totally want to talk about this book. Because it's just so rich and interesting yeah. and completely unmined. So uh -huh. many folks don't know anything about this book. To every person who might be listening to this podcast, I would say you'll be doing yourself a favor if you pause and just go get a Bible or an app and read. It's only eight chapters. It's all about sex. Mm -hmm. It's holy, so you can't <laughs> feel bad about it. But to read it and to let yourself giggle. When's the last time you giggled while reading scripture? Oh. You really don't. <laughs> and to say that this has so much freshness to it that we really ought to pay more attention. In the Revised Common Lectionary, we get mm -hmm. straight up one time, one time, the scripture Three says, years, one time. Three years, one time. <laughs> and it's like the most milk toasty seeming section of scripture. And so that's in chapter two. I want to say eight through 17. I'm just going to read part of it, encouraging us to no longer think that it's just two lovers saying, let's go, it's springtime. Instead, that it is the feminine voice, the feminine divine, Sophia, speaking to humanity, speaking to us, cajoling us to come away. So hear it again. Look, the voice of my beloved Look, he comes, leaping upon the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Look, there he stands, behind our wall, gazing in at the windows, looking through the lattice. My beloved speaks and says to me, Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. For now the winter is past, the rain is over and gone, the flowers appear on the earth, and the time of singing has come. The voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree puts forth its figs. The vines are in blossom. Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. Oh, my dove in the clefts of the rock, in the covert of the cliff, let me see your face. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Catch us, the foxes, the little foxes that ruin the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. And that was the masculine voice being quoted. Here comes the feminine again. My beloved is mine, and I am his. He pastures his flock among the lilies until the day breathes and the shadows flee. Turn, my beloved, be like a gazelle or like a young stag on the cleft of the mountains. I just feel like there's so much there begging humanity to come closer, acknowledging that we're bounding and leaping. Have you seen a baby goat run around? It's yes. the goofiest looking thing. <laughs> the spring box, you've seen those. Yes, they're very entertaining YouTube videos. <laughs> yes, and if that is one way by which the divine sees humanity as adorably goofy, but young and lovely and forgivable, see why yes. God would keep bothering. Absolutely. And I love that poetry, arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. I just want to like, hear that as the refrain of my morning, hearing God singing to us to yeah. get us going. That was a really important scripture for me when it came time to recognize my call had shifted. Mm -hmm. And that was what I heard was, arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. There was no judgment, no harshness, just the time has shifted. Also, I can say that my husband recognized I was shorter than the preachers for whom the pulpit was built. And so he <laughs> made a step for me that says SOS 2, 6 through 8, which is arise, my love, and come away. So my husband managed to make a dad joke out oh, of the <laughs> I am glad that I am not the only preacher who has had a stool built for her. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
<laughs> so this is my favorite book. When I think about all that it has to offer, and we haven't even touched on some other parts of it. We just kind of hit the highlights. I think this is a book that we should spend a lot more time on. But descendants of the Puritans that we are, we are going to have to get over some of the sexiness of the language. For example, because we promised that there would be some salaciousness. So here you go. In 7-6, this is the masculine voice speaking. How fair and pleasant you are, O loved one, delectable maiden. You are stately as a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters. I say I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its branches. Oh, may your breasts be like the clusters of the vine, and the scent of your breath like apples, and your kisses like the best wine that goes down smoothly, gliding over lips and teeth. Well... <laughs> I think I know what's going on there. <laughs> and I think we've nice given you all good yeah. reason to read this book. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty darn fabulous. I guess the last thing that I would leave us with would probably be in 611, you have kind of a back and forth between the two lovers. And here, I don't know where I would place the divine voice. And this is where the poetry refuses to fit. It's not totally clear who's speaking when. I should say for those who go look it up, different translations struggle with the voices. Some will be so bold as to make the interpretive choice to say, you know, this is the Shulamite speaking and this is the beloved speaking. But the actual Hebrew doesn't tell us. You have to take contextual clues, and there is great scholarly disagreement in certain parts of the book about whose voice is whose. So this is one of those places where it's not totally clear who is speaking. I went down to the nut orchard to look at the blossoms of the valley, to see whether the vines had budded, whether the pomegranates were in bloom. Before I was aware, my fancy set me in a chariot beside my prince. Return, return, O Shulamite, return, return, that we may look upon you. Why should you look upon the Shulamite as upon a dance before two armies? How graceful are your feet in sandals, O queenly maiden. And thus begins the poem that captured me. I'm glad that poem captured you, Marie. I think God's love is powerful. And that adoring love has the power to bring us great meaning and joy to our lives. So thank you for taking time to share a little bit of this with us this morning. Absolutely. Thank you for asking. And if I would give any dare to you and those who are listening, go read it. Read it out loud. <laughs> it's yes. beautiful. An incredible experience. Well, I believe our joy is complete. So I want to thank all of our listeners for being with us today. Coming soon, I hope to record an episode that is all about your questions. So if you're curious about something, let me know what that is. Send me an email at mvano at stmargaretschurch.org. Please do listen again next time, remembering that our J-O-Y is not complete without you. This is a production of St. Margaret's Episcopal Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. Thanks to Stephen Vano, who composed and performed our theme music, and to Heidi Soule, our producer. Music